and welcome to On Integrity. My name is Ella and I'm a third year biological and natural science student. And I'm Temi, a third year psychological and behavioural science student. And you're listening on CAMFM. The recent eruption in the global conversation on systemic racism has led to many of us looking to our own circles to question why black people are so underrepresented in certain spaces. We believe that a major part of making science more inclusive is to ensure that there is integrity. Integrity is commonly thought about in the scientific process, ensuring research is objective, reproducible and free from fabrication, so others can have confidence in the work. But this show is a place where two scientists aim to discuss the lack of integrity in one, their presentation of scientific history, and two, their presentation of science and academia as a career today, with the hope that this will give the scientific community and beyond an insight into the role that racism has always had and still does have on the field, allowing minorities to have confidence in the field as a place that they will feel belonging to. This show is based on my original speech for the Philip Hammond Science Communication Prize, and each week we will read a paragraph of this and delve further into the issues discussed within each. Starting with the lack of integrity in the presentation of scientific past, this first episode, Exploitation, discusses the intrinsic link between several fields of science, namely natural history and the slave trade, and how wrongly we are still seeing black communities worldwide being exploited for the name of science. Yeah, so should we get started with reading the first paragraph? Of the speech? Okay, here we go. We've all been to natural history museums. It is not immediately obvious when we enter these institutions that they are inherently racist, but this is undoubtedly the case. Historically, they were used to showcase treasures collected by Western powers as they seized control of other countries. One significant figure is Sir Hans Salome, an Irish physician and naturalist. His collection of over 71,000 items played an important part in the foundation of the Natural History Museum of London, the British Museum and the British Library. But let's consider the context in which these collections were amassed. Salone began collecting towards the end of the 17th century at the peak of the transatlantic slave trade. He worked as a doctor on slave plantations while also recording plant specimens collected for him by enslaved Ghanaian men and women. He went on to marry Elizabeth Langley Rose, who had inherited a Jamaican sugar plantation from her father, profits from which would later fund his collecting. After Salone's death in 1753, his extensive herbarium, a collection spanning continents from Jamaica to North America, Western Africa to Southern Asia, was used as the founding collections for the Natural History Museum. We shouldn't detach ourselves from the suffering that has led to such items being placed and displayed here in the name of Western education. Samples from this period are still very much used in evolutionary and ecological research today. But are the slaves that collected them given sufficient credit? The Natural History Museum's History and Architecture webpage describes Salone as a high society physician who travelled the world collecting natural history specimens and cultural artefacts along the way. Although slaves are often mentioned, such articles tend to avoid explicitly stating the fact that his natural history expertise and resulting wealth was a direct result of the slave trade. The tone used to present this information is not accidental, and this shouldn't come as a surprise. Museums were created to serve the middle and upper classes, to provide a culturally enriching and educational experience for those who could afford it. In some respects this has changed today, but in many it hasn't. 
Numerous studies show that museum visitors are drawn largely from white professional classes and tend to be more affluent and better educated than the average person. Is this why such institutions seem reluctant to engage with their exploitative past? Yeah, so that's like the first section. And I don't know, I think it's really important to note that even though we're specifically talking about natural history here, so many other scientific fields have benefited from the slave trade. So many, so many. And it's just, you just don't realise until kind of you do a bit more research into it. And it feel like, as we were saying, it's kind of on purpose. They display these things in a certain way. So they're not like pointing the blame at themselves. And it's just, it's problematic. (laughs) And I think it's kind of important that a lot of what we're going to be saying here today is often that you kind of have to dig for the information a little bit because they've kind of buried it as Ella said before, that to kind of shift blame away from them when it's a strong reality and it's still having influence on us today. Yeah, it's so true. But yeah, we are going to talk about natural history because that has some quite interesting examples, would you say? Very, (laughs) very. So I guess like the first thing is, why do we find that like natural history and the slave trade and, you know, these kind of horrible things that's happened in the past like why do we find them so often linked I think the main thing is that slaves were seen as free labor you would buy them off the ship or at the market and Mm -hmm. you could use them to do all of the hard work you wouldn't want to do or what white European counterparts wouldn't want to do because they were seen as lesser or if they would go on expeditions, people that the people like, for example, Sir Hans alone would have connections in these countries or the people on the boats would have connections in these countries who would also own slaves and they could mm-hmm. then go on and use them as free labour. So and another thing is that they would also have like knowledge of the land that they didn't have. So free labour, large amounts of knowledge. To them, it seems like an easy connection to make if that makes sense. Exactly. And I think it's important also to note that there wasn't a lot of money from European governments at the time to do these expeditions, to kind of go off to these places. The only ships that were really going off to these places were um, those involved in the slave trade, as we all know, um, triangular trade um, and everything like that. So it kind of, it was a free trip almost for these naturalists in Britain to get off to these all like these exotic places and and yeah and as you said free labor because if they couldn't actually get there themselves they would actually um use these slaves that were already there to do the work for them which is yeah kind of scary given the fact that we don't know that a lot of the time and also they don't get the recognition for the work that they did do (laughs) which is yeah and it's and the reason why it's important to talk about this i think is it was summed up really nicely by kathleen murphy who's a scientific historian at the California Polytechnic State University. Um, and she said something like, there's a tendency to think that the history of science is, I don't know, triumphant or progressive, and that it's always a force for good. And we tend to forget the ways in which it isn't the case. And that's why looking at the natural history archives and everything in the context of slavery is, is important. And I think it's, it's so important that we're not saying that these pieces that have literally shape the way we see scientific history are not important they are extremely important and they are valuable Mm -hmm. but what we just want is accountability and and 
an honest reflection of the past and a representation of how things were collected, how things were sourced, how, how, what was the social context of the time that really shaped the way we look at science? Because if this science is going to be the basis of what we know today, it is so important to have that social context put alongside the scientific knowledge. So true. And like, we'll go into a discuss it later about the implications this has for the scientific community today. But, you know, just in a nutshell, if we're kind of forgetting about the, sci- the way science has been used negatively in the past, then we're kind of allowing the same things to happen again. And obviously, yeah. we're not going to be able to see this. I don't think we're going to be able to seeing the same extent of what happened in the slave trade again. Um, but, you know, if we see reflections of these, if we're not picking up on why we're seeing these reflections, then we're kind of giving them slack. But yeah, that's that's for later episodes. Today we're going to be talking about <laughs> um, some of the main figures, the naturalists at this time, who did profit the slave trade. And as you know, yeah, in the speech we talked about Sir Hans Sloane. Yes. You might recognise him from places such as Sloane Square, Sloane yes. Street, Sloane Avenue, Sloane Grammar School, Sloane Gardens. <laughs> You think they would get bored of using his name? Goodness. I know, right? Do people not get confused? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. I guess no. It should go without saying that um, a lot of these figures did heavily contribute to science today, and their work is still used. And this is why we do see them being named or being presented as heroic figures. You know, Hans alone, as we said, was a physician. He was a naturalist. He was part of the Royal Society. I think he went on to... Did he become president of the Royal Society? Yep. Yeah, he went on to become president. So it's not like we should discredit the science he's done, but we keep saying we need to think about the context that it was collected under and also the negative things that were often left out in this presentation of him. Exactly. So I think it's important for us to at least say the good stuff that he's actually done for science and what he has left for us to remember, to use and to grow from. And um, one of the things that he did was during his time in the Caribbean, Salone visited several islands and collected more than 1,000 plant specimens, as well as large supplies of cacao and Peruvian bark, which would be later used as a way to treat eye ailments. So mm-hmm. it it did have lasting effects and Obviously, without that information, there would be a lot of conditions that probably wouldn't would have had a a much longer research life, and it would have taken a lot longer to figure out a way of treating people. Or he also, um, as we said in the speech, he collected over seventy one thousand items in his collection. And I've personally been to the Natural History Museum, and I love the Natural History Museum. I have my opinions on museums and 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 how they stand. But it is such a enriching experience. And one, it is free, which is really important because it allows kids and people of working class to be able to access this information. And having, what, 71,000 items is the base. The base, that's amazing. There's so much enriching knowledge. And I remember as a kid going to school and just being amazed by all of these things that I otherwise wouldn't come across. And I think that is quite important. Bringing the world home, if that makes sense. Yeah, you're, you're so right. And it's just, 
and the Natural History Museum, rightly so, do recognise him as as a significant contributor. And yeah, it's important to recognise that major scientific breakthroughs were made there. But what's even more important to recognise is that these wouldn't have been able to take place without exploitation of slaves. They just yep. they just wouldn't have happened. Like as we said, he was one of these people who um, got to go to Jamaica on one of these ships. I think he was the he was the physician to the new governor of Jamaica at the time. So he was high up, and he used these ships and the slave trade as a passage for him to get to these new places and and start up his his natural history collection. I think the thing for me which is kind of scary is the fact that he was very aware of the severity of slavery and the treatment yeah. um, if you think about you know you could suggest that some people weren't actually aware about how severe the thing the process was and the the lives yeah. but he was aware because he actually wrote i think it was a book or something about the punishments that were being inflicted on slaves you know he he, he I think he said something like, for rebellion, slaves were usually punished by nailing them down to the ground uh, and then implying... Oh, my God. Yeah. It's... it's oh, I don't even want to read it, but I think it's the fact that we see these works of where he's written about slavery, but then goes on to be engaged with it. We see him marrying the daughter of a plantation owner, therefore getting the profits from this, which went on to fund his collecting... He, Clearly, even though he was aware of what was going on, it didn't seem to bother him because it was allowing him to get further in his career and earn exactly. money, which is so bad. And that brings up an interesting point, really, about the value of knowledge and where the knowledge comes from and how much power that actually holds. Mm-hmm. And we can see, for example, Salome was known, well, is, is, is relatively known for his influence in bringing hot chocolate over here i love me a good hot cup of cocoa and um so we can see that when he was in jamaica the slaves would drink a drink mixed with cacao and water and when he tried it he said it's not palatable this is not for me it kind of made him nauseous (laughs) But, but then he when he mixed it with milk and sugar he was like "Ooh." This, this this is nice, this is this is what I'm going to take back. And you can see the strong influence of what would be like slave local knowledge and how that is what is like a multi-billion dollar business right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and he basically, when he went back to the UK, he popularised it around, um, amongst the aristocrats. He was, I think, the doctor to the queen and king at the time. And that allowed him to introduce it slowly. And it became a booming business, really. And now there's a shop called Salone's Hot Chocolate Online where you can buy, like, a posh hot chocolate bag for, like, four ninety nine. dollars It's vegan like, as well. From what he did? Yeah, they even have a whole page about his history and the way he basically pioneered hot chocolate they called it the chocolate pioneer and oh my gosh <laughs> yeah it's it's very favorable towards him um which is interesting um, but you know they do vegan chocolate great for me I'll take that, yeah 
But okay, yeah, so it's just it, it again just reiterates how the power of where the knowledge comes from holds more weight. Right, because, yeah, again, I don't want to go too far, far into what we'll talk about later, but I think we definitely see reflections to today when um, people in, say, Britain or America or other European countries may collaborate with a scientist from a poorer country or something like that, or a country which is less known for their science. A lot of the time they're going to be using um, knowledge from that area and... Yeah, as we'll find out, we don't always see the credit being given as much to people who are lesser known or people from who are from a certain country, which is definitely quite scary. <laughs> and I guess some people could argue back that this was the culture at the time. This was the how people treated slaves, and it was just, you know, this is how it was. But I think important things today is that we have we don't seem to be recognizing that to uh the correct extent today when we talk about Hans Sloan, when we talk about these collections from the time we're not recognizing that we're ignoring that because it's convenient and we don't have to be like that I think it's interesting because a lot of the time we're talking about you know returning the goods from the British Museum back you know the when we talk about like say mummies or we talk about statues and things like that but with natural history, with information, it's almost harder because you can't always return those things back. Exactly. And the way that we can pay respect and the way that we can have integrity with these things is is to acknowledge them to the extent and just mentioning, oh, he went on a slave ship is not always enough. It's, it, I think sometimes we need to say he was married to the daughter of a plantation owner because that exactly. significantly influenced his career. Exactly. And I also think it's quite important, like, I always see that excuse of that was just the culture at the time, but you will hear a lot of history of science, like, people who study history of science, that that is just a massive generalisation. Like, not everybody agreed with slavery, and it's almost these people saw it as an opportunity, especially the wealthy elite who could afford slaves, and they saw slaves as more they were a commodity and not everybody agreed and we'll go on to discuss that later but just because that was the culture doesn't mean you fall in line with that and and that's an excuse of kind of the maliciousness of it all in my opinion so yeah we can't just focus on one person though because there were so many different people involved I think you had a woman Honestly. that you wanted to talk about yeah. Um, her name was Maria Sibylla Merian, and she was a German-born, wealthy, fam- kind of famous for her work on metamorphosis, and her artwork was, her artwork is beautiful, like, I really oh, wow. wish I could draw like that, but, so, she was known from, so, she travelled from Amsterdam to Suriname in South America, which was a Dutch colony, um, which basically allowed her to actually travel over there especially as a woman mm-hmm. um, but she did have to have um, someone with her and I think she took her daughter with her and so name consisted of 6,900 slaves oh a tiny Wait, island <laughs> in South America that had 6,900 slaves and 6,000 of those slaves were African slaves and she would use some, not all of these slaves, obviously, but she would use some of these slaves to help her collect 
work. Some would willingly bring her um, like maggots and little little things of the land that they knew that she would be interested in. Mm-hmm. And it it helped her with her the artwork she would draw. The She didn't use a microscope, which was what made her work even more brilliant is that she focused on the outside of metamorphosis. So like the, the growth and the, Right. and the development which like was the macro level honestly than, yeah, yeah it was it, exactly and i think it's important that we can celebrate people's work but also be critical of it it's not one or the other and it i want to make it known that she was critical of the treatment of slaves i don't think she necessarily believed in slaves not existing but the way they were being treated I think she definitely thought was unnecessary and inhumane um and she did I I know she did bring a slave back but I also don't think it was in the way of any malicious intent wait but what did she take she brought to back to a slave to Amsterdam with her Amsterdam right but slaves are slaves and you know but she's not as bad as others but does that even make it any I don't know it's a it's a tricky field to navigate and her being a woman at the time in a field that was definitely male dominated and relatively still is male dominated today is a breakthrough in itself and it's wonderful to see a, a, a female naturalist but she again was wealthy she was white she did have connections. She used slaves. It, it, there's a balance that we have to consider. And I think we also have to make that known. But I, I think with her, although she is using black bodies, whenever I did my reading on her, it was known that she did use slaves, but it was more in a casual way. And I think we need to be more critical of that when we see the usage of black bodies. Yeah, no, it's literally just what... We're we're trying to address today like you can't just focus on one part of something you, you can't just celebrate the fact that she was a woman making massive breakthroughs in science exactly. you've also got to take into the account the other things that she was involved in so yeah yeah that's just a really good example of that and i think yeah we we can't just keep focusing on natural history because exactly other other fields really benefited from the slave trade as well just just to give a couple of examples in the physical sciences slave labor built the first major observatory in the southern hemisphere in Cape Town, South Africa, which went on to become the Royal Observatory. Um, wow. And interestingly enough, the first astronomer at the observatory was Theron Fallows, who studied maths at Cambridge. Ah. <laughs> um, and as the first astronomer, the head of the building, he was majorly involved in overseeing the building process. So that's, that's what I've got to say on that. Um, <laughs> Newton, a little bit more famous. One of Newton's crucial readings um, came from the French slave ports in Martinique. Um, This is when he was developing the theory of gravity. He was studying ocean tides, obviously knowing that the gravitational tug of the moon was the thing that was causing them. And this required tide readings from all across the globe. And without the transatlantic slave trade, he wouldn't have been able to get these readings here because the port wouldn't have been there. There wouldn't have been British people traveling there if we move over to medicine it's quite grim but a lot of the medical breakthroughs of the time used slaves bodies really i don't know what other way to say it because 
yeah, it likely did highly influence medicine at the time because when slaves were on their ships, they would often get ill. They would often um, not be able to fulfill their purpose as slaves and therefore instead their bodies were used. Um, they're examined. Can I make a quick point? Go for it. I think it's quite laughable that so much quote-unquote research and experimentation was done on black bodies but for example when I look online today a lot of the pictures of certain conditions tend to be presented on white bodies so for example I have had like plenty of skin conditions like I've had eczema I've had contact dermatitis I've had Mm -hmm. so many things (laughs) crazy (laughs) and as a child or a, a teenager, I would go on the NHS website and like try and figure it out before I go to the GP because I was that person, <laughs> scare myself. <Yeah. laughs> and basically all I would see was red inflamed skin on red inflamed bumps on white skin. But mine was really dark or even flesh toned bumps on darker skin. And it's how do I differentiate between seven different types of dermatitis i it it was it was it was tricky it's like you're only catering for a certain amount of people and i'm here sitting like damn okay hope the gp knows what they're seeing because if, if they're using the same resources as me how are they meant to know the difference and how are they meant to accurately treat me not just giving me one save all product which i kind of think they did they gave me e45 and everybody knows e45 kind of is a mm. everything type thing <laughs> but one fits all exactly um but yeah i think oh, i think it's no, important that's it's such a good point because even like with all the recent media attention to black lives matter and stuff there was a lot of talk about curriculum especially medical curriculum mm. because it is so important that yeah. we have diversity in the skin tones that are being used to display conditions because if the doctors don't know how to treat a black person for this condition then it's going to be putting people at risk and exactly. it's, it's just the care is compromised if you know what I mean exactly and recently a, a medical student at St George's Malone McQuende was felt strongly enough about this to actually create his own handbook showing Brilliant. how different illnesses looked on non-white skin yeah <laughs> And it went, it was went viral. It was so popular. I think because, I saw it on Twitter. Yeah, people were just like, "This is needed because I'm not getting this when I go to my medical lectures." Yeah. He, he told the British Medical Journal himself, "On arrival to medical school, I noticed the lack of teaching about darker skin. We're often taught to look for symptoms such as rashes in a way that I knew wouldn't appear on my own skin, and it's just what you were saying. Exactly. It's an experience that people of color are having that." It's just not on. And it's also so easily solved as he's done. He's made a handbook to make it more, make it easier Honestly. for medical students to learn. Yeah, and he, in, it's called Mind the Gap. He included side-by-side images showing the way diseases were presented differently on darker and lighter skin. Love that. I know, right? <laughs> and then there even went on to be a whole petition about how medical schools themselves should take responsibility and must yeah. include BAME representation in clinical teaching. It's on change.org. It got like 100, 196,000 signatures. Woo! So clearly people want something done and I, I really hope... I haven't followed that, that up actually, but I really hope something is being done. I hope so too. High up. 
not just making the students do all the work. Exactly. And I think it is important to say that these things are not being completely ignored. There are um, bodies that are beginning to recognise it in recent years that the kind of the role that slave trade had, had in their in their fields today. For example, as much as we keep talking about the Natural History Museum, in 2007 they did have a project um, on the founding of many of their collections within the context of empire, colonisation and exploration. This was to quote, commemorate the British bicentenary of the abolition of the transatlantic slave trade and to provide a lasting legacy for the future. But my kind of thing is, as much as it's great, Mm -hmm. I don't remember hearing about this. Like, what year will... Okay, I guess we were quite young. We were in maybe like year two or year three or something. Right? I have no clue. Seven years old? Yeah, seven, eight, yeah. I think that's year two or year three. Anyway, not the point. Well, it is the point because (laughs) we were in school, yet these projects that were largely aimed at maybe school... Maybe not that young, let's be honest, but school children... I don't see this lasting legacy, you know? I don't see... Like, especially when I did the original speech, a lot of people weren't aware of the kind of things I was talking about. So as much as these projects are good, if they're not actually being used, if the knowledge isn't being used, then what are they doing? Exactly. (laughs) And like, in my opinion, I went to the Natural History Museum, I think it was last summer, with my friends. And again, obviously there was new things to see, but if this is what they felt like one of their missions were to do and you know to continuously push i didn't hear a word of it and what we're almost 13 years on it could have been good for when we were in 2007 but if this was aimed at us i clearly am not learning anything new like the only reason i know about this is because of you ella (laughs) just now like i feel like there needs I feel like we need to stop using the performative methods and if you're going to say you're going to do something there needs to be a, a, a larger push towards it and a way of educating the youth of today on the unfortunately sad history but how it can be beneficial it's not about oh no this is all bad it's this was really sad circumstances but look at the great that came out of it and I think it's just as simple as that but I'm not seeing that and I would I would love to see that I would I would be so happy to see that (laughs) in the Natural History Museum for sure and the thing is I did have a look at these resources and they're actually really good they're really useful and they're really informative and they talk about so many more figures than we have time to talk about so like I definitely will we're going to be setting up a Twitter page and I definitely will link that on there as reading list for the first episode because it's actually really good and I just don't understand why it's not promoted more I don't know maybe I don't know enough about the whole thing but yeah (laughs) but the thing is I did what I found kind of funny was not funny it's actually quite sad on the video they did about Sahan Sloan yeah this this YouTube channel has 76,000 subscribers and this video had 3,000 views with 18 likes. So wow. I'm like, what's going on? Like, I don't know. I mean, there is definitely, whether it's people not wanting to hear about it or, which I don't think is the case because I know people today that are finding this stuff really interesting and really something that they yeah. should learn about. 
I don't I know. Think... Something's, got, something's going on, but yeah. <laughs> I just think there just needs to be a larger push for it because there's enough. I don't see myself ever subscribing to like the Natural History Museum because I wouldn't watch it regularly. But I feel like on like their website, they could push for it a little bit more or like on the anniversary of his death. I, maybe it might be distasteful, but it's the reality. And maybe like adding that in biographies on like his birthday, for example, or the anniversary of when the collection was first founded. I don't know, something like that, just to push it a little bit more. Yeah, maybe it just doesn't sure. fit their narrative. <laughs> yeah, narrative is oh, it's so important, and I think yeah, oh, we need to just change the context in which we talk about both these things, not just natural history museums. When we talk about the slave trade, we need to talk about as much as we talk when we learn about the slave trade in, in school, we learn about how bad it is, which is really, really, really important. But then we need yeah. to think about its links to other things, such as this, such as natural history, such as um, people gaining personal wealth because it's those are the things that also has the legacy as much as the yeah. um horrible things that went on has a legacy these people benefiting on it have a legacy as well and if we don't talk about both of them as being intrinsically linked together people aren't going to realize they're just not exactly <laughs> the horrors exactly. have to come first they, they can't just come second we can't just say this is a great collection and then it was also collecting the slavery has to be these collections were a direct result of it anyway yeah that's enough and, I, <laughs> and like just one just to add on to that i feel like it's also important that britain like the british curriculum explains the british part in the transatlantic slave trade it i feel like a lot of it's very american yeah. focused as in we'll have one episode that okay yeah britain was a part of it shift okay now we're in america and we never talk about the important role that Britain played and it's quite sad when I'm 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 20 years old now and I'm learning about things I should have learned when I was 13 in that history lesson for example when we look at the British Empire we don't really learn about the negatives it's just great Britannia and, and the power force that it was when in reality there were so many hidden darknesses that really should be spoken about and educated towards kids and 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 the youth of today and even adults like me I don't really know what's going on and I think it's important that it is spoken about more freely and openly with resources out there that are accessible to younger people Mm -hmm. and like yeah tune into the next episode because we will talk a lot more about like the empire and like the the kind of mindset that has come from then and how yeah. it's reflected in science today so that that is definitely a good link to the next one but yeah enough about museums i think i think we've we've worn them out but um <laughs> what is so worrying is that <laughs> even though you know we think about all oh, the past yeah exploitation that was then we're still seeing exploitation of black communities black bodies today and there's just, exactly. I think we're going to pick up on three examples where we're seeing this quite severely. The first person we're going to be talking about is Henrietta Lacks. Uh, she was an, Amer- an African-American woman whose cancer cells were used in the first immortalised human cell line, which is called HeLa. And for me, this is kind of personal weird because we actually used those cells in our experiments this year, uh, which is oh, quite gosh. strange. And we didn't, I didn't learn about the history about it until... I think I read an article during all the 
um, Black Lives Matter stuff. Maybe that's on me, but either way, we didn't learn about that in our cells practical this year. These cells were obtained when she got a tumour biopsy for her treatment when she was diagnosed with cervical cancer. But what is really important to note that one, she did not give consent for any of her cells to be obtained or even used for any medical research. Two, she was not compensated for any of the the findings from her cell that are still used till this day. What? Um, and I think it's important to know that her family... So she sadly passed away in 1951. Mm-hmm. Her family didn't even know that her cells were being used until 1975. How can... I just don't understand how that happens. Like Except 1975. And it's... This, this part kind of disheartened me when I first read it because so when she passed away she was buried in an unmarked grave somewhere um on the slave owning part of the Lax family like cemetery so they didn't really know where she was buried someone who's so influential they didn't even know where her body was at her final resting point you know can't believe it (laughs) But she's one of the lucky few who people are now beginning to recognise the importance that she has. So as of 2010, a man called Ronald Patilio, a faculty member at Morehouse School of Medicine, donated. He knew the Lax family mm-hmm. and he felt upon himself that he should donate a headstone for her to memorialise her, to, to give her a name on this earth like direct on the ground you know that everybody does deserve and it doesn't stop there she started to get quite a few good recognitions in 1996 the mayor of atlanta declared the date of the first conference of Gila, october 11th 1996 henrietta lax day which you know step forward um 2014 um, Lax was inducted into the Maryland Women's Hall of Fame. 2011, Vancouver, Washington, in Vancouver, Washington, they named a new high school focused on medical careers to Henrietta Lacks, called the Henrietta Lacks Health and Bioscience High School, becoming the first organization to memorialize her publicly by naming a school in her honor. I like that. And I think, and there's even a movie that's been made of her in 2017 there's been a screenplay that was made um for her in 2016 i'm pretty sure and it's just finally she's getting the recognition she deserves but not everyone is as lucky to receive that yeah you know because like yeah when i was looking it up there's this page called the henrietta lax legacy group if anyone's interested and yeah all the things that have happened apart from that Henrietta Lacks Day, which was introduced in 1996, all these things have happened post, like, 2011 time, which is great, but it also is just so late. But we do have to take away that it is... This is kind of an example, in a way, of how we can recognise people who have initially not been given the recognition they deserve at the time. Exactly. There's a lot of people who won't have schools and everything named after them, and yeah, it's just, it's a good example of 
how we can pay respect to people who have died or who people in the past who have contributed heavily but not received recognition because of the social or political context or the racism exactly. that was taking place at the time. Exactly. But yes, and we um, have the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, right? Yes, which went on from 1932 to 1972. It's very important you guys remember this date because right. a massive revelation is about to happen halfway through this. <clears throat> so this was a clinical study that was done on African-American men in Tuskegee and it was funded by the United States Public Health Service. It was funded by them? Funded by them. Hmm. Okay. Okay. So this study was set out to see the effects of untreated syphilis. That is what was done on the paperwork. And they had a total of 600 men, mind you. And these men, there was 399 of the men who were unaffected and 200, no, who were affected, sorry, and 201 who were not. And the men were told that they were being treated for their syphilis, but they were actually being given placebos. They were told that this would go on for six months six months it went on for 40 years 40 years without them knowing these men were just given placebos for a little bit and then left to go on their own devices but they were still being looked at and 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 treated and, and being sold a dream that they could be healthy and they were so being they, cared so were, for just to clarify they were ill right with syphilis yes okay and they were just, um, everyone was given placebos? Yeah. Right. And within those 40 years, penicillin was discovered as being a standard treatment for syphilis. None of these men were given that at the time. None of them. And the only reason why it was stopped was because the study got leaked to the press in 1972. Um, one of the only reasons. 1972. That, that is so, so recent. recent. As a result of this study, many of the men died. 40 of the wives who had contracted syphilis from these men had also died. And 19 children who were born with congenital syphilis had also died. And that breaks my heart because it's, again, the way the US Public Health Service viewed black bodies as disposable because they were impoverished, they were black, and they were just seen as a commodity, something that they, that could be used, and it's and it's just so unfair and oh, all in the name of science, <laughs> just for science, yeah. and the fact that it took until 1997, a year before my sister was born, 1997, for Clinton to just give an apology on behalf of the US, 1997, again, just reinforcing how much. It feels like they don't care for black bodies. And that's just hurt, hurtful. It's, it's hurtful and it's also, like, still continuing. Um, exactly. Just, it kind of links on perfectly to the, the final example of recent exploitation of black communities is, or potential exploitation was in an yeah. interview done on COVID. We're all talking about COVID at the moment. Um, and... It was actually these two French scientists uh, were talking on live TV 
about doing potential COVID-19 trials in African countries. They said the reason why this should be done is because they don't wear masks, there is more exposure, and therefore they are at higher risk, and therefore they will be able to do more extensive studies on COVID there. This is, this is despite wow. the lack of cases in many African countries, despite the fact that in many, well, in Britain, in America, um, mm-hmm. in Italy, there has been mm-hmm. many, many, many more cases. But there's no suggestion of doing kind of experimental trials there. It's only in Africa because in African countries, because they're more at risk there because they assume that they won't be wearing masks. They assume that there'll be higher infection rates. Um, in the interview, they compared it to the study of AIDS um, in African prostitutes because they were more likely to have unprotected sex and they could they could study it because the, tran- the transmission rate was a lot higher, which I just find sickening, absolutely sickening, Yeah, that they can compare the AIDS, in a way, pandemic to COVID where there's barely any cases. Some countries are actually dealing, if I say this, dealing with the pandemic a lot better than certain countries that I will not name. And how does it make sense that you will study COVID in countries where the cases aren't there, where the transmission rate is clearly a lot lower than, for example, in Britain or US. And for me, there's only one answer, is that the way you value these bodies completely differently. We've said it before, it's reflections um, to what we were talking about earlier with the slave trade, we're seeing certain, well, not even certain, we're seeing black people being used for things which people don't want to do on other people and exactly it's that mindset which is something that is ignored and not talked about and looked over and is still damaging many communities across the world i think that's all that we want to talk about today right yep yeah so i think i'll just sum it up for everyone there is no integrity when we talk about natural history corrections and breakthroughs of the time. I mean, we've talked about Hans Sloan, Maria, but there's numerous, numerous other examples of work mm. that's been collected which does not recognise the context of slavery that it that underlies it. I think for yeah. me this is just really important because especially when we see the usage of black bodies throughout history, we can't just ignore the scientific ones because we think science is triumphant, we think science is progressive. It's not it's not enough to ignore the bad for the good exactly and we also spoke about how we can't say museums aren't doing anything because they are but we have to also consider what is the legacy that they're trying to leave and when we looked at that quote from the natural history museum i feel like they are trying they are trying but i do believe that more could be done which can happen in the next couple of years maybe even this year who knows this could be the start. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> um, but yeah, and it's not even just natural history, it's other fields too. We saw the observatory being built by slaves. We saw Newton's readings. We've talked about medicine. We can't just exclude one, but we have to acknowledge that natural history has probably benefited the most. 
for sure. And we can even see that with today's cases. For example, as we mentioned with Henrietta Lacks, the Tuskegee study, and even 2020 COVID experiments and studies. And I feel like it is important to know that this isn't something that's deep rooted in history and that's it's forgotten we're so progressed past that when it's happening today it's going to continue happening and i think this is why this discussion is so important because we need to begin to address it and and have an open discussion about the past of science yeah and it's it's not the past like you said it's today but yeah just exactly. to take away i think these things have all got to be taught in school because we tend yeah. to talk about them separately. We tend to talk about the slave trade. We tend to have science class. I don't think it's effective to get that away. It's, they've got to be talked about intrinsically. They've got to be talked about together. Because otherwise we're going to carry on seeing communities being exploited because science is progressive. Yeah. Science is okay, but it's not, it's not exempt from this exploitation. And we won't allow it exactly. to exploit people anymore. And yeah, the, exactly. the next episode goes on to talk about the colonial legacy doesn't it yeah as much as there's been physical exploitation there's also a kind of Mm. a mindset of superiority from this time science was used to almost justify imperialism and justify british takeover because it was good and it is slightly different from the exploitation so i would stay tuned for that (laughs) because there are reflections to today Think about volunteerism. Think about all of that. <laughs> hmm. Exactly. But yeah, I hope you've enjoyed. I hope you found it informative listening to us here on Cam FM. And yes. we'll be back for you next week here on Cam FM. <laughs> Woo. Have a good day, everybody. <laughs> Bye. 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 <laughs>